it's from Matthew 12, the verses 1 to 8. I'm reading from, uh, from the NIV, and you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles. At that time, Jesus went to the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and heads and heads of grain and eat, eat and ate them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the cons consecrated bread, which was, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Julian. Amen. <laughs> Come up. really hard to uh, know exactly what people are talking about when you can't see their mouths, the bottom half of their face. <laughs> Great to see you guys. I don't know if, uh, I just want to say um, good evening from me as well. My name's Sam, one of the pastors here at Calvary Freiburg. It's great to see so many of you here uh, this evening on this fourth Advent, despite being uh, a service here at Calvary where the de demographic tends toward the younger side, and I know many young people are already on their way home to visit family and friends over the holidays. Great to see so many of you here, and welcome on the live stream. Just let me ask the, the technicians, um, can you guys on the live stream see this massive Christmas tree here to the side? No. So if you're watching the live stream, you'll have to take my word for it, that there is a massive Christmas tree just over here um, to help us get in the spirit for the season. It's, um, it's, it's massive. That's how big it is. Yeah, no. yeah. It's probably four meters. I'd say it's four meters high. There we go. Yeah, it's 4th Advent Sunday, and uh, we're continuing this evening in our series, The Advent of the Messiah, uh, Jesus is Greater. And um, this series has been encouraging to me, I hope it's been encouraging uh, to you, and um, it's been a series that we've been doing in all of our services here at Calvary, and I think it's an awesome thing um, to think that um, even if you only come on a Sunday evening here and you're part of the Church at Five Congregation, we as a church are bigger than just one congregation. We're four congregations, if you will, and the Lord is working uh, amongst all of us, um, building His kingdom here amongst us here at this church here in Freiburg. And it's just been uh, good to see, um, to, to all get on board and, and, and have a single series unite us in this, um, in this Advent time of year. But not only that, um, the series has been encouraging to me because it's been putting this grand truth uh, front and center uh, in our church and in our lives uh, at this time of year, namely that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And I think we can all say amen to that. And what I want to say, yeah, amen, from the masks here, amen. Amen, there we go. Um, I want to say at the, at the outset, this is not a feel-good message. It's not like, okay, we've turned the lights on, we've put up a huge Christmas tree, and let's all make ourselves feel good by telling each other that Jesus is greater. 
Uh, this is not like a crutch for hard times, oh, it's been a tough year, but we can kind of take, um, take uh, comfort in some um, feel-good religious message, but this is the truth. It's, it's, it's the truth that Jesus really is greater. And as Jesus said, and it's written on our university building just down there facing the university library, the truth will set you free. The tr- it's the truth that sets us free. Recognizing the truth that Jesus is greater, therefore, is a truth that will set us free uh, in our Christian life. It will set us free into more that God is uh, giving us and where God is leading us. And so I'm excited the, this evening to look at our next greater than, and I'm interested to see what will happen on Christmas Eve, whether we'll get a greater than or a greatest ever. Perhaps this is our last greater than uh, this evening, and tonight we're looking at Jesus being greater than the temple. Jesus being greater than the temple. And uh, it was the... Uh, we're going to be talking tonight about worship. And I think this is really crucial for us. Um, Bob Dylan sang it this way. He said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. I mean, I, I can sing. Bob Dylan can't sing, so I can't kind of do Bob Dylan properly. He said, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that really gets at the heart of it, of who we are as human beings. As human beings, we are those who worship. What we're going to be looking, about, looking at this evening is all about worship. Now, let me just switch gears for a moment. I want all of us here this evening to walk out of this service with a heart yearning for Jesus Christ, a heart's desire for Jesus Christ. You know, that's really what Advent is all about. That's, that's the spirit of Advent, the desire that Jesus Christ would come to us. We just sang it in that refrain, uh, Oh, come, let us adore Him. We, 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 we see that the Lord is come, Christ is come, and we want to go and meet with Him. We want to go and worship Him. That's what adore means. It's just another word for worship. And that, what, that's what Advent is, is about. We, we look at our own lives and I know, at least this is often how it goes um, from in my life, we get to this part of the year, the end of the year, and we tend to look back. I mean, when Advent comes, it's pretty much, it's over. If you wanted to do anything at the beginning of the year, if you put some New Year's resolutions together, and you haven't got them done by Advent, it's over. I think that, that's how I feel. I think you'd agree with me. It's like, okay, once first Advent rolls around and people start bringing out the decorations and you're invited to parties and you have to shove down the cookies, it's like, it's over. You're not going to finish that dissertation. You're not going to get fit. You're not going to learn the guitar. It's kind of over. You're going to put that one into the next year. So it's this time of year that we're kind of looking back at the year that was and thinking, you know, um, the, you know, the news reports, Facebook will come up with this was your year. Spotify's already been telling me what I listened to this year. It's that kind of time of the year. And as we look on our world, we can see that it's been a difficult, um, challenging year. But not only that, um, for many of us, as, as we look privately, where no one else is looking, and where the, the media is not looking, and the, and the journalists are not looking, if we just look into our own hearts, and our own lives, and what we maybe set out to do this year, or what, where we wanted to grow or change, and we feel, no, we haven't, we haven't got there, we haven't made progress, we've failed, then it's, it's looking at our lives, and looking at the world in, in darkness, and, and really yearning from our heart, therefore, come, Emmanuel, come, Jesus, come and be with us. This heart yearning, this desire for Jesus, that's really the spirit of Advent. And I want all of us to leave this evening with that 
with that yearning, but not a, not a negative, um, mournful, uh, wistful yearning, but a yearning full of hope. Jesus is come for His first advent, and He is coming back, and even now, He is with us for the road ahead. We have hope. We have hope as Christians. We have answers. We have the truth as Christians, and this world our city, Freiburg, our region, wherever you're from, your home town, your home country, your home region, this world needs Jesus Christ. They need Emmanuel God with them. And what we're going to look at a little bit tonight is the relationship that this has with worship, with worship. So, our kickoff point this morning, Matthew 12, Janus read it for us a few moments ago, and the scene is, it's a Sabbath day, it's the day of worship, the day of um, the holy day to the Lord, and Jesus and His disciples are wandering through some fields of grain, and I can imagine they're doing this on an early afternoon, they've probably been to the synagogue in the morning, or maybe they're heading to the 5 p.m. evening service at the synagogue, who knows? But before they do that, they're wandering through these fields of grain, and I can imagine this in a movie, the camera might be, you can, ima- you know, you can imagine Jesus in the middle and His disciples kind of strung out beside Him, all out there, and they're kind of just walking through the fields of grain, they start picking heads of grain. Um, and then the camera kind of pans back, and there's like 20 feet back, there's this weird group of guys stalking them. Have you ever noticed that? As you read through the Gospels, these are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are right there. It's like Jesus is out for an afternoon stroll. Imagine you're out for an afternoon stroll along the Dreisam, or in the Kaiserstuhl, or whatever, and this is, you turn back, and there's like this weird group of people following you. It's just 10 feet back, and as soon as you do something, they kind of run up to you and ask you a question. Well, that's what it was like for Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, as soon as the disciples start picking the, the heads of the corn or the grain to eat them, the Pharisees run up and they confront Jesus. And they say, Jesus, your disciples, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, unlawful. That is what they're saying is, it's against the law of Israel to work on the Sabbath, and hey, now that your disciples are picking out the heads of grain, they're actually farming, they're actually doing work, they're harvesting, and that's not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, as Jesus answers here, uh, He makes two statements which would have simply shocked the hearers at the time. And, uh, and, and the danger for us is, if we've grown up in Christian circles, if we've grown up in the church, this kind of text just rolls off us. It's just like, yeah, it all just sounds biblical, you know? You know, it just sounds like the Bible being read, it sounds right, and so we don't really think often about what Jesus is saying. And if you haven't grown up in the Christian church, you may not understand from the context why these statements would be so of such shock value. Firstly, Jesus finishes this section by saying, the Son of Man, and He means Himself, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. In other words, I decide... Pharisees, I decide what is lawful on the Sabbath and what is not lawful. I stand above the commandments that Moses gave to your forefathers. An amazing statement to be sure, and one which we could look at in and of itself. And yet, it is perhaps topped by the statement that we will look at today, or this evening, uh, namely this, Jesus says, I tell you, someone greater or, some, or someone more than the temple is here. This is a massive statement for Jesus to make. I mean, 
what Jesus is saying is, just over there in Jerusalem, that massive temple, that huge building, it took 46 years to build. It's, it's not just one building, it's a complete complex on Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. It's the center of our religion as Jewish people. It's the center of our nation. We don't even have our own government. We're under Roman occupation. So if there's any focal point, anything that draws us together, what gives us our identity as Jews, as Israelites, it's this temple. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you know, I, as it's someone in your presence, that's me, Jesus, is greater than this temple. An amazing statement to make. Now, if Jesus compares Himself to the temple and says He is greater, then what is the temple and what does the temple represent? What is the temple and what does the temple represent? And this is where we want to get to the heart of the matter, and this heart of the matter is something that affects you, you, and me personally, today, practically, in all of our lives. This is not some abstract theology course in Second Temple Judaism. This is something that affects how we are going to live this coming week from the moment we go out those doors, even before then, even in the remainder of this service. The temple, first and foremost, represents worship. The temple, so think about this, Jesus is saying, He's looking at the temple and He's saying, you know, there's somebody, Pharisees, in your midst, that's me, Jesus, who is greater than this temple. And the temple represents worship. The temple is the place of worship. In fact, the one place of worship. Listen carefully as I read to you from Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy 12, verses 4 through 7. There, the Lord God is giving commandments to the people of Israel just before they cross over the Jordan River into and enter into the Promised Land. This is some 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. And we read these words. When you go into the land, you must not worship the Lord your God in the way that the nations who are already there, who, are, who do not know God, are doing. But verse 5, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put His name there for His dwelling. To that place you must go. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Did we listen carefully? The temple, this is talking about the temple that would one day be built in Jerusalem, later rebuilt. That was the rebuilt temple that the Pharisees were referring to or that Jesus was referring to. The temple is the one place of worship. It's the place, did we listen, where God dwells, where He, where his, where he lives in, in one sense. The place where the presence of God is. We could say it in these words, the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet and overlap, where heaven and earth kiss each other together. It's the place where, whereby we here on earth can have access to heaven. It's therefore the place of relationship, of communion between God and His people. It is therefore the place of worship. 
And Jesus is saying, as he's speaking with those Pharisees in the grain fields, there's one here in your presence who is greater than this place, this place of worship, this temple. That's him. Now, what is this about and where do we go from here? Where do we go from here in this sermon? I want to go right back to the beginning with you guys to look at the nature of who we are as human beings. Who we are as human beings. Who you are as a human being. And if we go back to the beginning, we see that we as human beings were created for a purpose. We didn't just, we weren't just randomly placed on the earth by God, but we were created for a purpose. There was, there was something towards which our lives should, should work or should move, to which we should grow towards, and that is communion with, union with God, communion, fellowship with God. I think one of, the, one of the, the, the best pictures for understanding this is that description in the very early chapters of the Bible of how life was in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, when the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, were there. It's said that it was a kind of a routine, something that happened often, that in the cool of the day, after the heat of the day had dissipated, the Lord God Himself, and we don't understand how, some kind of theophany, some kind of manifestation of God, the Lord God Himself would come down into the garden and He would walk with the man and the woman through the garden in the cool of the day. And they would talk together and they would talk face to face. I think that's a great picture for communion with, fellowship with God. That's what they were created for, to have fellowship with God. And we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, these words, a little bit before that picture in the garden, where it says this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female, He created them. One theologian writes this, he says this, he says, to believe, we want to listen really carefully here, to believe that man is made in God's image, which is what Genesis teaches us, is to believe that man is created for communion with God. To believe that man is made, or that we are made in God's image, is to believe that we are created for communion with God. And I want to show you briefly why. Why? Firstly, to be created in the image of God, which Genesis 1 makes clear. Did you hear that? Three times. Three times the text makes clear that we were made in the image of God. It's as if the writer of Genesis wants us to understand this. Don't let it pass you by that human beings are created in the image of God. I'll say it three times so that it's clear. To be created in the image of God means to be created in the image of how God really is. To, to be in the image of God means to represent God. It ultimately means, in some sense, that as people, or as, yeah, as people look at us, that, that we would reveal the nature of God, how God is. 
And how is God? Well, God, in His nature, we're given a small clue here, it says, let us make mankind in our image. God is Trinity, isn't He? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one God exists eternally in three persons of mutual relationship, sharing communion and love with each other in all eternity. That's who God really is. That's the nature of God, the Holy Trinity. This is something which is foundational to our faith as Christians, which we cannot and dare not give up, the very nature of God, of knowing God as He really is. Now, it's this image that we're created in. And therefore, since the image of God in us is Trinitarian, it follows that for us, like God, that we realize our true nature, our true calling through mutual life. That is, through life in relationship and communion. Because that's, the, that's who we represent. We represent God who is, by nature, three persons in mutual relationships of love, which is why the Apostle John writes, God is love. That's the only reason the Apostle John can write, God is love, because of the Holy Trinity. So, we realize our true nature. We become truly human through mutual life, that is, through communion with God, whom we're created to represent, and with others. That's what it means to be truly human. And secondly, very briefly here, we see here in Genesis, where I read that bit about the animals. We, as human beings, are created above the animals, over the animals, to, to rule over them, not to dominate them and mistreat them, but to be good stewards of the earth. The animals are not created in the image of God. Only human beings are created in the image of God. And therefore, as human beings, we are able to do something consciously, with purpose, that animals can only do by instinct, and that is to, to take what the Lord God has given us in the creation, to take it from Him, to receive it from Him as a gift, and to bless it and offer it back to Him as an act of praise and worship. Animals can't do that. They can by instinct praise God. We know that the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the creation reveals God's beauty and His glory. But it's only us created in the image of God who are able to receive as a gift what God has created and take it and offer it back to Him as a blessing, as a thanks, as an act of worship. So let me draw this conclusion for us, and then I hope things, I hope that the mosaic will start to become clearer for you. We, all of us, every one of us here, and in fact, every other human being out there in the whole world, we have each of us been created in the image of God. And that is, each one of us, including you here this evening, has been created for relationship and worship. Each of us have been created for relationship and to worship God. Which is why Tim Keller is correct, pastor and theologian Tim Keller, when he offers this commentary on Bob Dylan's song. Now, Tim, Tim Keller tweeted this some time ago. He said of human beings, we all worship something whether we're religious or non-religious. We all worship something, whether we're religious or non-religious. 
And this simply refers to the fact that as human beings, we've been created in the image of a God who by His very nature, because He's Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is by nature outward-focused, self-giving, life-giving. You cannot call yourself a father simply, oh yeah, I feel like being a father today. You can only call yourself father if you have a son or a daughter, that is, if there is an other with whom you have a relationship. Now, that's the nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and therefore, as human beings are created in that image, we are created as outward-focused, other-focused, for relationship and worship, and therefore, it's not surprising, and Tim Keller is correct, that everyone around the world worships something, whether or not they admit it or not, whether or not they're religious or not. This is why worship is so crucial. So, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? And how do we bring this back to what Jesus says when He says to the Pharisees, here in your presence is one greater than the temple. Jesus has here, with this very short, simple statement, a word of judgment, but also a word of hope, and a word, and that's what we want to take away from tonight, particularly a word of reality. So, we remember that the temple is the one place of worship, that place in Israel where God dwells, where His presence is. The temple is the place where heaven and earth meet and overlap. It's the place by which earth may access heaven, the place, therefore, of relationship, of communion between God and His people. It is the place, the one place of worship. And yet, for all that, for all that, it was limited by sin. Because of sin, that is our wrongdoing, and because of God's holiness, God's holiness being unable to tolerate in His presence sin, only the high priest had access in the temple to the Holy of Holies, to the very presence of God. And that high priest only had that access once a year. Added to that, the worship at this temple involved a continuous, bloody sacrifice. I think if we, if we witnessed it today, most of us would be taken aback just by the, by the sheer um, blood, bloody nature of what was going on at this temple. These, these bloody sacrifices were brought in order to, to cover over sin, to propitiate sin, to make things right. So, the temple, yes, it was a door from earth to heaven, but it was also a barrier. It was also a barrier. And so, therefore, Jesus' word here to the Pharisees, hey, there's someone in your midst who is greater than the temple. In other words, I am, Jesus speaking, I am greater than the temple. This word is a word of judgment and of hope. Jesus' word predicts the judgment that would come on the temple, that would come upon the city of Jerusalem, in 70 AD, when God used the Roman armies to effect judgment on this temple, on this city. In effect, what God was saying in 70 AD is, this system of sacrificial worship, of bringing lambs and bulls and rams and goats, of the, holy, of the high priest only going into the Holy of Holies once again, this system is over. It's obsolete. It's done away with. That's the word of judgment. But the word of hope is this. 
Jesus' statement that He is greater than the temple, in reality, Jesus is saying that He is the fulfillment of the temple. He is what the temple points towards. In other words, the temple was never supposed to be eternal. It was supposed to point forward to Jesus Christ Himself, the greater temple, if you will. And one of those moments that Jesus excelled in, that, um, that we're not supposed to do in modern preaching, Jesus just kind of walked into places and said statements and then didn't explain them and walked away again. It's fantastic. In John 2.19, Jesus is standing in the temple and He simply says, tear this temple down and I will build it again in three years. And of course, everyone there is going, what? It took 46 years to build this place. How are you going to build it again in three days? Another question would be, how on earth are you going to tear it down in three days? There's a lot of rock to be torn down here. And of course, later, the Apostle John writing this gospel, he says, it was only after his resurrection that his disciples remembered the word and understood and believed what Jesus had said, that he was talking about himself and his own body. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the greater temple. So, what does that mean? If Jesus is, is the great temple Himself, the fulfillment of this temple, what it pointed towards, as in look through the temple and you should see further down the line Jesus Christ, Jesus is the God-man. Second great truth of the Christian faith after the, the Holy Trinity tonight, which we cannot and dare not give away, give up, Jesus is the God-man. God become man. God with us. Emmanuel, that is what we are celebrating at Christmas. And by God, we should be celebrating. Let me enjoin you now, celebrate this Christmas. Celebrate the miracle of God becoming man, God becoming one of us, Emmanuel, at Christmas. That is to say, according to His divine nature, Jesus Christ is one in essence with God the Father. He's truly God. And yet, according to His human nature, He's one in essence with us as human beings. He's one of us. He's one of us. He's truly human and truly God. And therefore, Christ is now the connection, the point where heaven and earth meet. Not only do they don't just kiss together now, they really overlap. They've been united in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the place where God dwells, where the very presence of God is. Paul writes this in Colossians 1, sorry, in Colossians 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to that fullness. He is the place where God dwells, where the very presence of God is. So Jesus Christ is now the place of relationship between of communion between God and His people. Let me say it very clearly, Christ is the one place of worship. There is no other place of worship. There is no other place where we can have communion, relationship between ourselves and God. There is no other place where heaven and earth meet, where earth can access heaven than through Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus Christ makes clear. I am the way to the Father, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is the word of hope. Christ is a new and better temple. And this is why Jesus says, get this, 
in uh, John chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well on the mountain, uh, near the mountain of, of, of Samaria. And Jesus says these famous words. He says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain in, in Samaria nor in Jerusalem. That time is over. Jerusalem is closed. We don't worship there anymore at that temple. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers, true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Again, because He is man, Jesus is one with us. Because He is God, He is one with the Father. And so through and in Jesus Christ, we are one with God. I want us to see here, and I know sometimes it can be hard. I'm not trying to spiritually manipulate you into some kind of um, ecstatic frenzy. But I want you to see here the access we have, the communion we have, the relationship we have, the worship we have now is altogether better in Christ than in the times of old, at the temple of old. Christ's once and for all sacrifice on the cross has dealt with sin. We don't come now bearing bloody sacrifice, we come now freely and boldly, not asking the high priest, but going ourselves into the very holy of holies through the Holy Spirit to stand next to Christ in the very throne room of God. We don't bring bloody sacrifices, but instead our sacrifice in Christian worship is one of thanksgiving and praise. We worship God as free men, free women, and free children who are free because Christ has set us free in the liberty of the Holy Spirit. And no longer is it that once a year, perhaps, we go up to Jerusalem to perform an act of worship and then depart again but rather we are united with Christ through faith. When we confess with our mouths, as Janus led us in the creed at the beginning of this service, and believe in our hearts, then we are united with Christ. The sign of that being real in our lives is that we are baptized, and when we receive Christ, that is to say we place our faith on Him, the Bible says that He gives us the right to call ourselves children of God. And Jesus says, if you receive me, then I and my Father will come to you and we will make our dwelling in you. That is, we will live inside you. That is, through the Holy Spirit that happens, we therefore, if you are Christ, you therefore carry the very presence of God in you this evening. It's not just at a one place of worship in Jerusalem in a temple, as it was of old. You carry in yourself the very presence of God. And together, therefore, we are now a spiritual family. And uh, it says in Ephesians that we are almost like spiritual blocks of stone and brick. And when we get together, the Holy Spirit makes us into a spiritual temple. And Jesus Himself leads us in worship as we gather together in the church. Now, I love Yanis and Antonia. I think they're great worship leaders. But let me just fill you in here. It's actually Jesus who leads us in worship when we gather together as His people. I think you guys will be okay with that. In uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 11 and 12, we read these words. Both the one who makes people holy 
that's Jesus Christ, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. There we have it, children of God. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, speaking to His Father, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly I will sing your praises. When we get together as a spiritual temple, Jesus Christ is in our midst, and He is the worship leader. So, yes, yes, Jesus is greater than the temple. And, and I, I, I can only invite you to be astounded at these truths or, or to reflect on them anew, how much greater Jesus is than the temple, how much greater our worship communion fellowship is than the temple of old. Now, I want to I move um, to close, my closing point now. I don't want this to stay up on this level of some kind of theological abstract truth that Sam was talking about on Sunday night. This has got to become down here. It's got to be real for each one of us on each day of the week. So, let me say, as I said, um, in saying that He is greater than the temple, Jesus was giving a word of judgment, a word of hope, and finally, a word of reality. And I want to conclude by looking at that word of reality. Um, what does this mean for us in these closing days and hours of 2020 and in the coming year, 2021? What does this mean for us? I said in the early service this morning, at the end of this year, we'll all have 2020 vision. That's, that's more, that's a bigger, a greater response than I received this morning. <laughs> I said this morning, it was an absolutely terrible pastoral joke. I'm glad that no one laughed. Okay, but what does this mean for us in 2020 and um, 2021? Firstly, this should make us clear uh, this should make it clear to us that Christianity, our faith, our religion as Christians, is all about worship and communion. It's all about worship and communion. It's all about a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You recognize the truth of Jesus as the Holy Spirit reveals Him to you, and through the Spirit, you then worship the Father. That is what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. But let me, let me just emphasize that point again. Christianity is all about worship and communion. Alex, um, one of the, the pastors here, he sent me an article that I read this week, from a, written by a man who lived the first 30 years of his life as an atheist, away from God. He lived a life of sin and self-indulgence. He was completely against the Christian church and against Christians, and he happened to sit down in a coffee shop one day. There were a group of uh, college students at a table nearby um, opening their Bibles. So this was a few years ago when we still had physical Bibles. And um, he, reckoned, he saw that they were reading the Bible and he got into a conversation with them. And for some reason, he accepted their invitation. He went to the church that Sunday. He went into that service, uh, an atheist, and he came out an hour and a half later, a born-again Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, his life had been completely turned around by the truth of the gospel. He said this, he said his whole, the whole time in his first 30 years of life, he had thought that Christianity was all about keeping rules, being good, 
attaining a certain level of holiness. Now, that is a misunderstanding of the place of good works in Christianity. And I can only say this, we have got, or woe is us, we have got a serious problem if we believe that about our own faith. And we've certainly got a problem when other people believe that about our faith. So, let me say it again, Christianity is all about, at the heart of our faith, is worship and communion. Why? Let me go back to what I said about being created in the image of God. As human beings, we have been created for the purpose of having communion with, relationship with, worshipping God. That is what worship really is. As we pour out our hearts, as we direct our souls in a certain direction, that, that is in, sen- in a sense the, the essence of worship. And as Christians, we want our hearts to be poured out, our souls to be directed first and foremost to God, and then after God to other things in this world, like family, like spouse, like children, like those in need. It's the ordering of loves, the love, the worship for God at the highest point. So, this is who we are as human beings, and that's why this is the heart of our faith as Christians, worship and communion. And this needs to be, as I said, real life, not abstract. When I talk about worship tonight, yes, I do mean when we come together on a Sunday evening and sing songs of praise, or recite the creed, or say prayers, or have fellowship with each other after the service, or when we submit to the teaching of the Word of God, all of that is worship. But it would be wrong to think that for six days of this week, we kind of do other things, and then we have a little section of worship on a Sunday evening, maybe 90 minutes, and then we go back to our lives. Romans 12 verse 1, it's in my notes here, our Christian act of worship is something that we do with our whole being, with our whole life. And again, this is why it's so crucial, this is why I showed you this in the beginning, this is because we're created in the image of God, and God is this self-giving God, this God of relationship. And when we're created in His image, that's what we're created for, to have communion with Him, to have relationship with Him, that is to worship Him, not just for 90 minutes on a Sunday evening, but all the time, all the time. We want to be, as Christians, a good definition for us should be passionate worshippers. We are passionate worshippers all the time. And therefore, I want to make it really practical for you now. Would, what do you think? How, is, how about you? Where's your life at? Would you describe yourself as a passionate worshipper? As a passionate worshipper? Someone for whom this, this ongoing communion with God, relationship with God, is, characterizes your life. This, in every day, in every way, whether it's the food and the drink that you eat or the work that you're given by the Lord to do, in every way are you receiving from the hand of God, recognizing this is from my Creator, this is from the giver of all good gifts, and then turning that back to God and offering it up to Him as an offering of thanks and of praise. Is that what your life is at the moment? My invitation to you is, if you're feeling spiritually dry, if you're feeling disconnected, could it be that you are not a passionate worshipper, that you have actually become disconnected or partitioned, that part of your life is this section of worship on a Sunday evening, but otherwise you're, you're far from this life of worship, 
And, and, and again, this actually means that you're, you're actually losing your true humanity. You're actually losing what it means to be truly human. Because to be truly human means to be true to your nature. And true to your nature means true to be your nature as created in the image of God. And created in the image of God means to live in this communion, in this relationship with Him. So let me encourage you, pray even in this moment, even in this time, ask the Holy Spirit to refresh you, to reignite your heart for passionate worship, holistic across all of life. This has to be everyday life for us, and this is my desire, our desire for you here in the new year in 2021. And let me just finish by saying, which I said at the start, I want all of us to go out of here with this yearning for Jesus Christ, this hopeful, joyful yearning, I need Jesus Christ, but God is faithful and He has provided Jesus Christ. Jesus is there and He is with me because our city, our region, our world, wherever you, you might come from, your hometown, your home city, your home country, needs Jesus Christ. And so, if we think about that for a moment, what does it mean? What does it mean when we desire to um, help other people to become Christians? I would say it's, it means this. If the heart of Christianity is worship and relationship, then what we are desiring to win others to is a life of joyful worship of God through Christ in the freedom and liberty of the Holy Spirit as we fulfill our nature and calling as we've been created in the image of God. We need to mark this. This is what we're winning others to. This is what it means. We want to be extending an invitation to worship. So, as we go out here this evening, we don't want to be whipping ourselves on the back Oh, I need, oh, it's Advent, and I, I should really tell people that the reason for the season is Jesus. I should, because I kind of should. People, are gonna, people at small group are going to be asking me. No, we want to be, as passionate worshippers, we are passionate about whom we worship, and we can't help but share that passion with others. We can't help but invite others to come into that lifestyle of worship, to to come into their true nature and calling, to become truly human. That's what it's about. Very briefly now, there's no such thing, says one theologian, as natural man existing in separation from God. It's not natural. Man or woman cut off from God is in a highly unnatural state. The doctrine of that we've been created in the image of God means, therefore, that we as human beings have God as the innermost center of all our being. This divine, this, this reference to God is the determining elephant, eh, elephant, huh. element in our humanity. And therefore, let's, let's focus here, guys, losing this sense of relationship with God means we also lose what it means to be truly human. And get this, our culture and our society, they don't agree. They think it's strange of us. I'm sure you know what I mean. They think it's strange of us that we would gather here together in our weird little red cinema to worship God. They think of us, they think of our faith. Yeah, I know some Christians in my life. That's their kind of, that's their hobby. They go to church on Sundays. Or they think of it, yeah, 
You know, those Christians, they're just weak. They can't deal with, the, with hard, cold reality, life as it really is. They need the crutch of Christianity to kind of get them through the tough times in life. They see what we do here as something optional, something on the side, not essential. Or they reduce our faith in Christ, our religion, to psychological and social, a psychological and social construct that has its origins back in the mists of our evolutionary biological past. But they're wrong. What I hope to have shown you tonight is that worshipping God is what we are made for, what we are created for, and it's where we derive true satisfaction. David writes, Psalm 16:11, one of my favorite verses, he says to, the, to, to God, he's speaking to God, he says, at your right hand uh, is eternal joy, is pleasures forevermore. It's what gives us true satisfaction to seek the presence of God. It's not our Christianity and our worship which is unnatural, despite appearances in our society. It's the lack of worship which is unnatural and which is sin. Interestingly, Paul describes sin as this. He says, for all have sinned. What does that mean? They have fallen short of the glory of God. Christianity is all about worship and communion. Let me me close by saying this, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. In the words of John Piper, mission exists because worship doesn't. Which means, as we go out uh, this evening, we want to be spreading worship, inviting people to a life of worship. And as we do so, we're not inviting them to something strange, alien or unnatural, but we're inviting them home to their true calling and nature, how they've been created as human beings to have this communion and this fellowship with God. Let me invite the worship team to come back up. I just invite you to ponder these things uh, tonight and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit now, uh, as we maybe sing or, or hear this next song, Spirit of God, will you refresh me? Will you create in me a new heart for worship? Will you create in me a new joy in Christ, a new communion with Him, so that as I go out, I go out as a passionate worshiper, inviting others into a life of worship. Amen.